Welcome, everyone, to a special interview edition of Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Bros. Today's episode is a conversation with Steve Flink, writer for Tennis.com, author of two great books, The Greatest Tennis Matches of All Time, and Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited. And we get into everything uh, Australian Open 2021 on the men's side, going very much in-depth into Novak Djokovic's run from start to finish, especially the, the final against Daniil Medvedev. Nadal Tsitsipas in the quarterfinals, Aslan Karatsev, the unusual lead-up to this tournament, and uh, so, so many great topics in here. It's always a pleasure uh, to discuss tennis after a major with the Hall of Famer Steve Flink. So without further ado, here it is. We're joined once again by Hall of Fame tennis writer Steve Flink. He needs no introduction at this point. His latest book is Pete Sampras, Greatness Revisited. Uh, but um, this is a tradition on the channel. Steve and I talking after every single major. It is one of my great pleasures. So, Steve, thank you for coming on again. Well, Gil, thanks for having me back. I'm looking forward to talking about this Australian Open. Absolutely. You know, this was the men's final that I was hoping that we would get. So I felt that Medvedev and Djokovic were the two best players on the in the world on a fast, hard court coming into the tournament. And we got it. But then when we got it, Novak Djokovic really showed that there's still a, a very large gap there. So as you were watching the match, where was that gap most apparent, uh, more specifically? Well, I think where it really came through, Gil, is uh, his big match experience. The fact that it was his 28th major final going for his 18th uh, Grand Slam championship. And Medvedev only in his second final. It was fascinating because so many people, Gil, thought coming in that Medvedev with his 20-match winning streak, having beaten 12 top 10 players in that stretch, having won the Paris Masters 1000 event last fall, backed up by the ATP finals, two really impressive triumphs, and then coming in here and impressive all the way through with the exception of a five-setter with Krajinovic, but he, he won the fifth set six love, otherwise crushing everybody. So there was this feeling, plus the fact that he won three of his last four matches against Djokovic. But I think what everybody was perhaps overlooking was that some of those wins were a little circumstantial. Uh, last year in London in the round robin where Djokovic really played one of his worst matches of the year and Medvedev was almost letter perfect. And in a round robin, you always know you have a second chance. Djokovic in the back of his mind knew that he lost three and three. And then another match that he lost to Medvedev was in Cincinnati the previous year, which again was, he almost had him in straight sets and Medvedev managed to come back amidst that stretch where he was in six finals in a row. A lot of things happened. They, they weren't playing a lot in a short stretch. I just mean that I think the four, three uh, career series lead for Djokovic was misleading in the sense that uh, Medvedev maybe caught him at the right times, played some of his best matches while Djokovic was often vulnerable on those particular days. So here we are in this final, Gil, and I think what happened here was it was a case of a great player who was going for that 18th major, knowing how to step up to an occasion, knowing how to, to peak on a big occasion and being so familiar with those circumstances and with the nuances of those major finals because there's nothing like playing a major final. And then you have a guy who's highly charged and a little high strung in Medvedev who granted has sometimes overcome his own uh, moody stretches in matches as we saw at the US Open a couple of years ago when he, he got into it with the crowds and he had his altercations and yet he kept winning and nearly beat Nadal before losing a five set final. So, but this time I thought Medvedev Gill was very edgy. 
uh, from early on, and Djokovic had a nice, comfortable three-love lead before Medvedev managed to get back to three-all. And so I thought we were heading for a tiebreaker, and it was clear the first set was going to be critical because Djokovic, especially, you don't want to go down a set against him. He has the best winning percentage of any of the players in the Open era after winning the first set of a match, nearly 96%. So I, I, I knew, I, I really thought we were going to get a tiebreak. Suddenly at five, six, Djokovic struck and got to love 40. And then Medvedev saves two set points, but Novak made a really nice block return off a first serve deep down the middle. It was interesting because Paul Anacone said, and I saw the Tennis Channel podcast and he thought it was an easy error for Medvedev. I didn't really feel that way. The return was pretty deep down the middle. I think Medvedev hates having to generate his own pace of a fairly high ball. And he, he took it about shoulder high and hit it in the net. And so there was the first set pocketed by Djokovic. And from there, I think he, although he went down a break in the second, he was pretty much unstoppable because after going down the break in the second, he won the next four games and pretty much broke the match open. So I think it was about his, his vast experience and his, his deep determination and the fact that, and, you know, at his best, he's still, he is the best player in the world. Yeah, uh, there's so much to unpack there. I, I agree with all of it from especially, you know, the head to head. And if you look at situationally, how Medvedev got those victories, I, I agree that it didn't really indicate how the match was going to go. But also when it comes to the start in the first set, which Medvedev really needed to win, you know, not only. Yes, no, let, me interrupt, let me interrupt you a second. Don't you think, in my view, he needed to win that set more than Djokovic did. A hundred percent. Scales were not balanced. So continue. Right. I just want you were in accord on that. Yeah. And, and let's circle back and talk about Medvedev in the best of five format. I do want to talk about his ability to, to go deep and, and perhaps how that could have affected the match. But for Novak, you know, he's been up three games to love in four Australian open finals in a row, Murray 2016 and yeah. then Nadal and then team and this one. And to me at the start of the match, it's one of the most nervous moments of the match up there with closing and Djokovic just jumps on you because he just cuts through the tension of the beginning of the match. And then that three love cushion became key. You're right. Now the surprising thing those in the other cases, he, he, he romped in those first sets. In, uh, in before team last year, when team you know got the break back also and made Djokovic made Novak work very hard before winning that first set before Novak did, and in this case Med Medvedev was back to three all, but that's a big difference between opening up a service break lead and getting back on serve. So Medvedev felt a little better by the middle of the first, but Djokovic immediately sort of reasserted himself at three all, and he kept holding comfortably, and then finally got that break at the end of the set. And I did think he played two superb sets to follow while you saw the angst of Medvedev and the consternation. He was constantly, uh, frequently looking at his corner and, and just uh, feeling sorry for himself. And I think Djokovic sensed that on the other side of the net. I think he was well aware. And he was so professional and so disciplined, so determined. And, and, and although you knew he was, how determined he was, he really was keeping his cool and a really highly concentrated performance of Djokovic and a good mixture too. The other thing I liked about this match kill was I thought he hit a lot of balls down the middle. I thought he really broke Medvedev down off both sides and played this match much more on his own terms than some of his previous clashes with, with uh, Medvedev. Right. I, I agree. I, I don't think that Medvedev has ever really played that version of Novak exactly. a version 
exactly. I felt that Novak was a lot more proactive in this match and, and he wasn't really agreeing to play those long rhythmic baseline rallies uh, with Medvedev that sometimes he played in the past. Instead, he, he really wanted to, to put Daniil on a string and move him around instead of kind of playing on those even terms. And I really felt that Djokovic wanted to get to Medvedev's legs, even if it came at the cost of losing the first set. Now he won it. Medvedev worked harder than Novak and he lost the set. And then he was in a, an awful position. And that's a well point well made because a lot of, I'm sure people watch some of those points where Novak would hit the short backhand chip or the backhand drop. And Medvedev in the first set was getting to some of those and making good plays off of those. But that was definitely taking something out of his legs. There's no question about it. And he has commented in the past about how, no, how much Novak made him run. He talked about that in Cincinnati in 19 when Djokovic didn't put him away after winning the first set. But he said, Novak was running me from side to side. He's, he doesn't want to have to work that hard, particularly in best of five. So you're right. Yeah, there was the chance, and it didn't happen, that Medvedev might win the war. You know, when that would be a small battle within a war and he would lose the war. But he didn't even get that satisfaction because of the way Djokovic, how opportunistic he was in that last game of the first set. Right. And we mentioned that crucial point at 5-6 when, when Djokovic got the break uh, and, and eventually, did he serve out the first set at 6-5? Was the break no, at 5 all? Oh. No, he broke at five six. Okay, it was the break at yeah. five six, right? Yeah, the break um, at five. that yeah. that that crucial block return at thirty forty. Yeah, uh, it it bothered Medvedev the entire match because yeah. because you're right, he he does not want to to generate his own pace, especially with the forehand from the middle of the court. And Medvedev had had so much success serving against everyone else all tournament long, especially Tsitsipas. He won 88% of his first serve points against Stefanos in the semifinal. And the returns that Novak was showing him are returns that he hadn't seen the entire tournament. And not only was he tired, but he was not allowed to, to play those short points on his service games because of Novak's return in my, in my eyes. Well, in my eyes too. Absolutely right. Now, Medvedev, here's the fascinating thing. He'd lost his serve seven times in the previous six matches. And then he lost his serve seven times in one day against Novak Djokovic. That tells you, and this was with getting 64% of his first serves in Medvedev. That's not a bad percentage. You're pretty close to two-thirds. That's a very kind of standard, reasonable percentage for him. And he wouldn't have been disappointed if you told him before the match that that was what he was going to get. And yet Djokovic got all of those breaks, you know, starting with the two breaks that he got in the first set and, and, and kept it rolling on, three more in the second, a couple more in the third. Remarkable that he could do that. And the thing was, he was getting back a lot of first serves. They weren't always great returns, but they were pretty deep. They, they were neutralizing Medvedev. The second server returns were just spectacular. I mean, he was being very aggressive, Djokovic, on the second server returns, taking them early, keeping them deep. And I thought a little more aggressive than usual without missing many. It, it was That was demoralizing to Medvedev. I think of one at the end of the second set, I believe in the second set point, where he it was so deep down the middle that Medvedev was totally trapped, could barely get his racket to the ball, and he couldn't believe it had come back that fast and that deep. And that sort of, to me, symbolized that match. 
Yeah, he he was turned the wrong way. He ended up having his chest against the back fence instead of the yeah. net. Yeah, uh, that was quite the the return and and the second set. I actually, oh, I, you know what it reminds me, Gil. It's just funny. There were some debates going on. I'm sure you heard them too. Some of the commentators debating: Did Nadal or Djokovic have the best return in tennis? Rafa is a great returner, no doubt about it. But I don't think he's nearly as versatile a returner. I mean, Djokovic is a much more aggressive returner to me. Rafa has improved his return a lot in the sense of. Yes, there are times now off second serve returns that he steps it up to, but I don't think there's anything quite like Djokovic, uh, uh, you know, especially when you get off of clay. Rafa manages to break a lot on clay, but, but what Djokovic does on hard courts, I mean, he also broke in the quarterfinals Zarev six times. I mean, that also is not easy to do. He's taking great servers and making them, and, and that's what Zarev commented. I thought that was fascinating. After that match where Djokovic came from a set down to beat Zarev in four, Zarev was talking about the, the third and fourth sets because Djokovic came back to one set all. And then I'm sure you remember in the third set, it was one four. Djokovic serving one four, love 30. And he won five games in a row. Danger of being down two breaks and didn't let it happen. Fourth set, very similar. Love three, 15 40. So again, could have been down four, love two breaks and pretty much out of the set. He came back and eventually won that set in a tie break. And Zarev said the problem is he knew he needed that second break. He said it was, that's what he was really thinking about. That's what was really bothering him. If I could have only had the second break because nobody returns like Novak. So that's, so that's a nice psychological advantage to have against great big servers that they know they're never safe with one break against Novak Djokovic. Yeah, that's very interesting. Now the return is something we've gotten very used to over the course of Novak's entire career, but for this tournament, I think one of the major storylines is we're seeing Novak really pave the way for the aging process, which is uh, his development of a serve that was uh, averaging in the 120s pretty regularly and came into the final with 100 total aces. And it's really hard to ace Medvedev, but still right. throughout the tournament, the, the serve and including the second serve, which was very hard uh, and unattackable. Yeah. Yeah, the serving really uh, was a huge boon for for Novak. It was. He would tell you, obviously. I mean, there were you know he struggled to hold a lot against Zarev, although he fought off a lot of break points and he still managed to only get broken three times, which was not a bad effort in four sets. But you're right. It, he had beefed it up. He was getting that those extra MPHs, and even as you said, Medvedev hard to ace, and Novak only served two or three aces. However. Look at the number of service winners, what I would call service winners, perfect first serves down the tee that had Medvedev outstretched and all he could do was lunge at them and hit them in the bottom of the net. That's as good as an ace. He's not close to getting the ball. And plus, it gives you the same confidence as an ace that you see he's had no chance to get it back. So, yes, the serve, the combination of the improved serving of the heavier serving combined with his best returning was what made this such a standout tournament. But let's face it, Gil. Let's remember the moment, the pivotal moment of the tournament for him was against Taylor Fritz in the third. That was a scary experience because he was on his way, what looked like a straight set win. He's up two sets to love. It's one all in the third. And that's when he had the problem with the abdominal injury. And you could see how preoccupied he was, how limited he was in his physical range. And finally, after losing the third and fourth and going to two all in the fifth, he broke it. He won those last four games, but it was he shrieked when it was over. I don't know if you saw that clip, yeah. but I, I've never seen anything quite like that from him in a situation like that. 
And that was not, oh my God, thank God I won so much as thank God I won feeling the way I was feeling. Uh, you know, he just, it, it scared him because he wasn't sure he was going to be able to find a way out of that match. And then to think that he could go from that to not practicing, to beating Roundage in four, to not practicing on the next day off, to beating Zarev in four, finally beat the Koretsa, the qualifier from Russia in the, in the semis. That was a nice break to play him uh, because he was able to get off the court so fast and then had two more days off and peaked for the final. I, that's what I think will make this this major in his mind one of the most memorable of his career because he knew the danger he was in in the middle of the tournaments. One thing to survive a five set match, but he had to survive this injury where and he didn't quite know if he was going to be capable. He didn't even know he was going to be able to necessarily step on the court against Milos Raonic in the round of sixteen. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Incredibly impressive to to pull through against Fritz when he was extremely limited, and then. I would say he was uh, also somewhat limited against Raonic. Zverev, yeah. he really yeah. kind of got, after the first set where he didn't play a, a very good first set, from right. there on, I felt that he was okay. Uh, but the, you know, surviving in the early going was crucial, and the one thing that never left him was his serve. And I think he leaned even extra heavily on his serve to get him through those couple matches. And that's what made Zarev, you, you summed it up beautifully. I think we're thinking along the same lines here, Gil, but that's what made Zarev's performance so impressive that Novak was serving that well. And yet Zarev was putting him under so much pressure on his serve. I just thought to me, that was actually the most interesting match. Yes. We had other matches in the tournament, like Curious and nearly beating team before losing in five, being up two sets to love. There were other moments in matches for sure, but to me, and obviously the Cispita, we can talk about Cispitas and Nadal, but I did think the most intriguing match to me in many ways was that Zara ma match with Djokovic because I thought it was a re really high quality contest and, 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 and a very admirable triumph from Djokovic, who could so easily have been in a five seven. And yet he managed to pull out those third and fourth sets from those deep deficits I mentioned earlier. It was, that was great stuff, I thought. Did you enjoy that one? Yeah, I mean, I think I don't think both players played great at the same time until the fourth no. set. That's true. That's true. But, but uh, Zara played a very good first set and probably should have closed it sooner, but Novak was down 5-3, took it into a tiebreak. And they both did play a pretty good tiebreak that went 8-6 to Zara. Then Djokovic, I thought, played a great second set, just too good. And then, and then the third set, yes, a, could, was a little choppy, but there still was some spectacular play. And finally, yes, it reached the crescendo in the fourth mm -hmm. because uh, it fittingly went to that tiebreak. And that was a tense tiebreak. And uh, it, that one went to six points. So Novak had, had a chance there at 6-5 to end the match and missed a slice back into the net. So he had to change over kind of uh, in a state of angst with himself a little annoyed with himself for not getting down a little lower to make the slice back in but then he comes back and plays a really nice pass that forces Zarev into the volley air and serves an ace again getting back to the serving it was also clutch serving because at five six in that set before the tie break Novak had 40 love and Zarev came all the way back to to set point and Novak aced him out wide to, and then eventually held on then in the tie break on match point at seven six in the breaker uh, Djokovic aced him down the tee. The, 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 these are moments, again, that he'll remember because he, he was able to call on his serve in a way that perhaps he has never done to that degree at a major before. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, these are not things as great as he was in 2011 or, or even 2015 and 2016. It, he was great 
in different, I mean, he's still great in those areas, but we've never seen serving uh, like we saw from him in this tournament. Let's get to, uh, let's get to Medvedev though. You know, what do you think he needs to do uh, in order to be a little bit more threatening in, in a big match like this, obviously the nerves and uh, the experience of, of dealing with moments like this will, will naturally make him more difficult to deal with. But I also think that there were some things technically in this match that Novak, no matter what would have ultimately taken advantage of. Yeah. So there, you're talking about the, especially the for, the forehand vulnerability of Medvedev, right? Forehand vulnerability, but also I've seen a pattern. Let me let me frame it like this. I've seen a pattern that in in majors, Medvedev uh, often wins very very quickly. You know, three sets, maybe right. four right. sets. But normally, when he goes down and it has to get really physical and go really long, I haven't seen him respond very well to that. You're right. I think the one exception, obviously, was being down two sets to love in a break against Rafa in that 19 mm-hmm. U.S. Open final and somehow pulling that into a fifth. That was a great effort. You're right. He tends to like to just blitz people and not even have to think much. And he was able to do that against Sispidis, who was a bit wasted after his comeback against Nadal. He didn't respond very well physically or mentally. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. And I think Djokovic was probably going to exploit that no matter what that was going to, that was going to happen. He was going to find those holes in Medvedev's game and he was, he was going to take full advantage of it. Right. I mean, Medvedev's a very patient player, but you wouldn't really know that from watching the second set or the third set. I think there was so much pressure on him and I don't think that he believed physically either that, or he didn't really want to do the suffering that it really it would have required to come back and and push it to four or five sets yeah i agree it's a straight he's he's a very strange guy mentally sometimes he's gotten away with these sort of semi tantrums that he has but there were so many times you could see when he was at the far end of the court until on the tv so we couldn't see him as well but you'd see him looking over to his corner if i and we know that he had the incident in the match with virginovich where the coach bickering with the coach who was who walked out and I still don't know the real story whether it was he told the coach to leave or vice versa but I do believe that his team has got to take a different line with him I do believe they've got to say look we're not going to sit there and take this abuse it's not doing you any good it's not doing us any good you 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 need to be more mature than that I hope that's what will happen with him over time is that he'll realize stop looking to them to solve your problems and get on with the job yourself and if, if he can calm himself down, that 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 alone will make will make a difference. But as it stands now, he still has too many of these times. And also, he felt sorry for himself with the crowd. There were a lot of Serbian fans, and that appeared to be getting under his skin too. And he was talking to the crowd a little bit toward the end, as if to say, "Why don't you get off my back?" Or so he's got a strange guy. And this yet this same guy who seems so immature goes into the presentation ceremony, made some really nice remarks about when he first got to know Novak and Monte Carlo. And it couldn't have been more gracious afterwards. His press conference was first rate. Again, he, he basically said, I, I don't know how different it could have. There's certain things could have gone different, but I don't know. Basically, he was saying the problem, paraphrasing, the problem was that Novak did not allow him to play his best. Yeah, That was the gist of it. So I really admire that side of him. And Again, the way he handled the defeat in the presentation. But I do think that during these matches, he's got to be more composed and concentrated and and not uh, carrying on that way. Yeah, and he's he is. He's highly, highly intelligent, which comes across anytime 
he he does media but but yes he he can get a little off the rails for me in order for him to to be better in in best of five because i really do i i think he's more dangerous in best of three when he can yeah. do as much running as he likes and not worry yeah. about getting tired uh, yeah. i think he either needs to find ways to to shorten points outside of his serve uh perhaps get in better shape than he already is when it comes to endurance or, or maybe just be willing to suffer a little bit more. Uh, I think if he can do one, if not multiple of those three things, I think that'll put him in a much better position to have success uh, or take that next step, I should say in the majors. Yeah. All, all great points. I think Gil that he need, he can get in better shape. I don't doubt that with the right, maybe a, make some uh, changes in his training and more in the gym and less on the court, whatever it's going to take. I can see that the game part is going to be trickier because, you know, he's, it's pretty well formed for him now. I'm not sure what he's going to do. That's going to change too drastically. Maybe he could add a little more finesse to his game. There's certain things he could try to do, but I, I think he's somewhat limited that way. You know, uh, and that's how he plays the game and it's got to be working for him and, but the conditioning would help because the, if he could trust the conditioning more, maybe he wouldn't fret as much when he's down a set in a big best of five against the top player. Because you're no, no doubt you're right. The results show thus far that he, he, he has been able to channel it much better in best of three and go full force and, and not worry about tiring himself out. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, let's get to to the quarterfinal and, and Nadal and Tsitsipas. And... You know, I, I think Stefanos played magnificent tennis and he's so dangerous when his game is on well-rounded, he can defend, cover the court, but he also has a really great transition game and, and a world-class forehand and they were all on display. I just, uh, I do think that uh, I also question if Nadal came into this tournament in his best condition with the back injury, because I really I felt like he ran out of gas much earlier than he normally would in this match. Gil, I, I think you're, you're right on target, right on target, because the, we know that Nadal couldn't play the ATP Cup. Now, some people didn't put much emphasis on that, but I did because I thought, wait a minute, the last thing he wants to do is let his teammates down. The last thing he wants to do is miss the match practice and preparation that he's going to get uh, that's going to carry him into the Australian Open feeling good about his game. Now, the draw was so good, and he is so great, the combination, that he blitzes into the Cispitus match without losing a set. He's, he's killing everybody. He could have almost lost a set to Fanini down 4-2 in the second, but managed to salvage that set and win in straight. So he was in pretty good form, but he had not been tested physically. And in the back of his mind, I think he was, oh, that always was a worry to him. It was a deep concern. Uh, how am I going to be if it gets so I maybe that's what made him so tight in the third set tiebreak because if you look at those first three sets the only thing that changed in the third set Nadal was completely outplaying him the first two breaking him almost at will and holding serve with ease and then the change in the third with the Stefano started to serve much better himself so he kept up his end of the bargain to get it to the tiebreak with some very comfortable holds but then Rafa, to miss the two overheads in the tiebreak, one of them almost on top of the net, the smash, and the other later on taken on the bounce from near the baseline. An easy backhand, one pretty easy forehand. I'd say of the seven points he lost, at least four unforced errors, maybe five. So uh, that's not like Rafa. And I, I think the problem was he wanted it over with. He didn't want to have to play even four sets. He wanted to get off the court. And 
there's no doubt there was a sharp decline in his physicality those last two. You could see it even by the middle of the fourth, never mind the fifth. And it, it's a testament to his professionalism and determination that he kept those fourth and fifth sets as close as he did, which were four and five. Unfortunately, nerves struck again, I thought, at five all in the fifth. Because you're serving out in front in the fifth set, at least get yourself into a tie break and take your chances there in another tie break. But he didn't get that chance because he lost the serve in four bad errors, really, to, to lose that game. And then even though he had chances to break back, it was too late and Stefano served it out. So, yes, I think you're right. I think this was a question that the back really was, a, was serious enough. And, yes, it improved and he kept talking about it during the tournaments, feeling better, a little better now. But the, the preparation, he couldn't get over the fact that he hadn't prepared the way he wanted to. And he still, I still don't think that back was 100% either. It was yeah. just maybe closer to 80 or 90%. And when you're playing majors against the best players in the world, you want to be at 101%. Yeah. And even if it was a hundred percent, if it, if it kept him out of the gym for a week, yeah, it kept right. That stuff matters yeah. as well. So uh, yeah, because I, I honestly think Gil, that in the, the, the normal Rafa, the Rafa, we know so well, if he drops the third set tiebreak, he still probably wins that match six, three in the fourth. He's not, but he was definitely uncomfortable by the middle of the fourth. Something was not that right. And he's, and he hung in there and he competed. Well, now, meantime, Cispedes had this new lease on life and started hitting out so freely. He played some beautiful tennis the last couple of sets and his serve was magnificent at, at, at times in the fourth and fifth. But in the rallies, I felt like he got some, he got some help from a rapper that was just me. It was a little beleaguered out there. Yeah, and uh, Tsitsipas's serve looks better to me this year, which is good because I always felt like there was more potential in that shot. But yeah. I think e even larger than that is we've seen matches, and we talked after the U.S. Open when he blew six match points to Chorich, just yeah. about his his ability to to handle pressure points and to not make errors. And I do think that it's a, a huge positive for him that he came through a match against Nadal, and he really didn't give anything up when, when the chips were down. No, that was terrific. I thought with the day off at his age that he should have been done. He, I, I expected him to recover better physically, mentally, emotionally, all three. Uh, but Medvedev got on top of him early and then, you know, in those first two sets. And then when Stefanos had that chance from a breakdown in the third, uh, from three, one down, he nearly stole the set. But he couldn't, you know, he couldn't take advantage of a few opportunities late in the set and it was gone seven five. You know, he he uh, I think he would have liked to have done a bit better there. But still, it was nice to see him back in the semis following up on what he did at Roland Garros, where he lost to Novak in five sets. So now it, it's becoming a, a little more kind of an array. He's, not, he's he's now lost a semi to Roger, a semi to Novak, a semi to Medvedev. He's, he's getting there. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, Steve, I remember back a couple of French Opens ago. By the way, correct that. Instead of the first one was to wrap up. His first semi, he actually beat he beat Roger in a great right. win day, and yes. then lost it to Rafa in straight sets. But that was his first Australian semi. Now, so now he's had two Australian semis and one at the French. And hopefully, we're going to see better stuff from him at both Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. Yeah, and I, I think we will, especially at the U.S. Open. I think that suits him pretty well. Uh, a couple of French Opens ago, Marco Cecchinato makes the semifinal. And I remember asking you after that, uh, you know, are, are we going to see anything like this again with, with Cecchinato? And you said, Gil, I don't think so. So uh, 
You were right. So I'm going to ask the same question about uh, Aslan Karatsev, the, the Russian qualifier who it's really, he, he's been tearing through. It, it wasn't out of nowhere, right? He, he was winning at a very high rate at the challenger level coming yeah. in. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Do you think he, what do you think his ceiling is? Well, I'm, I was, I tell you when I was most impressed with him, oddly enough, it wasn't in the win over Schwartzman or beating Dimitrov who had a problem with his back and Dimitrov, of course, had had the win over team and no, no, the moment, what I was impressed with was the level of his game against Djokovic in the semis. The scores don't reflect how well he played and how well he handled it. And, and I, I was the first chance I had to examine his game in depth, watch a full match. And I was very impressed. You know, you mentioned the challenges. The gap is not that deep, Gil. So you're, those are meaningful wins for sure, because it's, there's not a great difference between uh, some some of the ATP tour events and the challengers in terms of what you have to do to win those matches. Yes, it's a big difference in beating the Djokovic's and Nadal's and Federer's at the very top. But but once you get underneath the top ten, I don't think the, I don't think there's a big gap. So yes, those those successes prove something, and I I'm kind of encouraged about. It. I think this guy is going. We're going to see a lot more of him this year, and I I I wouldn't be shocked. If he's the kind of guy that could end the year somewhere between anywhere between 15 and 25 in the world. If that happened, I wouldn't be stunned at all. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. I'm, I'm, I don't know that he'll be making slam semifinals on a regular basis, but I do think he's a, a top 30 player and he's not just going to really go away uh, by any means. And he's a uh, hard, nosed, a hard nosed competitor, Gil. He really, mm -hmm. you know, his bears down hard. And when Djokovic would, you know, Djokovic, you could see the respect that Djokovic had for him in, in Novak's mannerisms and reactions. And, uh, you know, even in the third set, you know, it, two things happened. One, he made a really nice comeback in the second set. Novak had him down two breaks, 4-1, trying to close him out. And, the, and then he, he got one of the breaks back. And then when Djokovic served for it, he had actually at 5-4, he had to save a couple of break points. It was 40-15. And then he really had to fight hard to hold on and got it done. So he's up two sets and he gets an immediate break in the third and and this guy breaks back again to two all. Then Djokovic took over. But I'm saying the attitude was so good. It was so uh, he, he showed he showed a lot of steely resolve. And I also I just like his game. I don't think there are that many holes in his game. So I, I, I I'm, I'm happy it happened. He, and he seems like a really good guy, very beguiling personality off the court. Yeah, he, he never said at any point, okay, I'm done. I've gone far enough. He no, uh, no. the fact that he kept wanting more really says something about a guy who, you know, had to qualify. Uh I yeah, think he went out and he showed no Djokovic clear respect and it that came through in his comments afterwards too. But otherwise he just played it like it was another match. Okay, mm -hmm. I'm out here to win. I'm gonna do whatever I can to win. And and it was yes, it was a very positive attitude and yeah, I, I, I was surprised. I didn't think the semi would, you know, never mind the scores. I didn't think the, it was going to be as hard fought a match as it was. And that's a, all a credit to him because Djokovic by then physically was really coming around. You described it well. There was clear signs in the roundage match where that's why I have a disagreement with any of the skeptics that were saying that Novak might have, there might have been something made up here. I didn't think it, I thought that was very unfair. If you looked at Novak in the roundage match, he was wincing a lot, even after winning points. Uh, they, they, it was clear he was not that comfortable. And as you mentioned, first set against Zarev, he still didn't look that right physically. And I'm not sure he was 100% physically that whole match, but it was the, in the semi that he, you could see that physically he was starting to feel 
really good. Uh, that was a, it, the movement was there in a way that it hadn't been in the previous contest. So it, that was nice for tennis that we got that match. Yeah. And Djokovic wasn't alone with these abdominal injuries. It was a, right. an epidemic. Right. It's an epidemic. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what do you, what, obviously there was an unconventional lead up to this tournament, but you know, I, I guess you have to attribute it to maybe a lack of match play and then a sudden rise in intensity with all the abdominal injuries and, and various uh, issues that we saw. Yes. Plus there were these comments. I read some stuff and the players didn't talk that much about it, Gil, but there was this top layer of the surface, the sanding. It was a little different from what they'd experienced a year ago. So I wonder whether that also contributed and that also may have been a factor in the fall that Djokovic took trying to change directions in the Fritz match could that have been a factor I I, I have to wonder because you're right they, they, they were prevalent these abdominal injuries were prevalent and I'm not sure if Dimitros was abdominal or lower back exactly what his was but there were there were more injuries than normal at that level so that so you have to look at the pandemic and perhaps the some slight changes in the surface mm-hmm Dominic team, Matteo Berrettini, right? Uh, just right. Team, many, weren't many. You, weren't you disappointed in team though? I have to say for a guy that I've watched rising up the ranks so steadily and impressively and winning the U S open last year in the grittiest way possible over Zarev in the fifth set tiebreaker. And, you know, those French finals, all the, you know, those really well-played French finals against Rafa. And then he comes here after having lost the final last year, in five sets to Novak, and uh, granted, maybe his practice regimen was was disrupted badly and he couldn't get the time he needed and the pandemic has taken his toll on him, but I thought it was a very meager effort uh, that he gave against Dimitrov. He looked very disoriented out there, and I just thought it was a performance I didn't expect to see from the Dominic team I've come to know these last three years, the last couple of years. What were your thoughts? I kind of gave him a pass and wrote it off as, as an injury. Cause I, I didn't think he was moving his feet. Really. It, it wasn't that he couldn't, it yeah. wasn't that he couldn't cover the court. Cause I, I thought he could run. I just, I wasn't seeing the adjustments with his feet and I thought he was in the wrong position to hit the ball on, on a very regular basis. And anytime that Dimitrov put a, a good return back in play, I felt that team wasn't reacting. Uh, so, you know, we have seen some puzzling performances from team early on in events like uh, at in uh, at the Western and Southern open in New York, when he lost something like one and one to Philip Krajinovic. So yes, yes, well, we have seen it, but I kind of wrote it off as just, okay, team got injured and on to the next. Yeah. The one in New York, I understood better because he was trying to get acclimated to the surface here. I thought, you know, he'd come off this long, a comeback win over a curios from two sets down and he'd had his day off. So I, I thought, wow, a lot of times how to propel somebody like team. And I agree with all your assessment of him and the footwork and the rest of it. I, but I also thought mentally, you know, those are, those are the times when you got to call more on your mental strength and try to work your way through it and keep a few, because if he can just keep a few more balls in the court and pick up his serving a little and make Grigor a little bit nervous then maybe there, there's a chance to salvage the match. Instead, he just went down the tubes in, the, in that final set. Yeah, I, I can't disagree with you there. He was certainly resigned very early on in that match. Yeah, he was. Did you have any other takeaways from, from the drama before the event? Some players upset with the conditions during quarantine and just really uh, a, a, bit of a, a bit of a circus before any tennis was even played. 
reminded me, I don't know if it, it was the case with you too, Gil, it reminded me a bit of the kind of uncertainty and uh, apprehension that was surrounding the US Open, where, where they did Cincinnati and New York and then the Open. And there was a couple of incidents early on with coaches or friends of, fan, friends of players and the like, where you worried, oh my God, I hope this is not gonna, I hope this is not gonna explode. And suddenly, you know, a bunch of players get the virus and then what? And what if it happens before a big quarter or a semi or God help us the final? But it, it reminded me a bit of that. But again, I thought it was, I thought what the Australian, what they did, what Tennis Australia did and Craig Tiley and the organizers to keep that event flowing. And, and, and again, to have the fans go for five days and come bring them back in. And it was nice that they could be back for the finish. But making that move in the middle, knowing it was a necessity. I, I think it was all handled really well. And uh, I was relieved in both cases, the US Open and here, that we got through it as smoothly as we did. But you heard Djokovic after the final. There's no doubt everybody had mixed emotions. That was a lot of sacrifices to make and all the quarantining. And it, it, it was certainly not easy on, on anyone. Yeah, that's a, that's a, good, a good summation. And uh, I do think that everything kind of had to be done the way it was done. And it was great to see tennis with, with some crowds again. And that's just a credit to the people of, of Melbourne and the people of Australia that they're able to, um, you know, they put in a lot of hard work to get that. So I thought it was uh, overall very, very good. Roger Federer is, uh, is coming back soon. And personally, I, I find it very difficult to speculate on these things, but Steve, you always do kind of such a nice job of, uh, of, of finding small insights and, and things to look for. So uh, my question would be, what should we be looking for when Federer comes back? I, I, I always think of 2017 when he, when he, again, he'd had a knee surgery in the middle of the previous year, the 2016 after Wimbledon, where he lost in the semis. And he uh, shocked us all by winning, you know, five setter from Nishikori, five setter from, from Stan Vavrink in the semis, and then five sets over Rafa, three five setters. And, and coming from three, one down in the fifth, he beats Nadal and wins the Australian Open six months away, first tournament back. We can't expect anything along those lines. I think it's great for him that he's not coming back at a major this time, that he can ease his way back in. The other advantage I think he has, Gil, I think you'll share my view, is the fact that he can end points so quickly. So that if, as long as the serve is functioning anywhere, anything close to the, what we're accustomed to with Federer, he's going to still breeze through some service games and end some points quickly. So I don't think the matches have to be as physical. They're not. They don't tend to be as physical for him. It, it takes a Djokovic or a Nadal or a Medvedev or somebody up at that absolute top tier to test Roger to, his, to the hilt physically. So I do think he can, and again, gets back to best of three. So I think he's coming back under the best possible circumstances. And if he can just even get to the quarters of that first event, that would be a job well done. But I, I think he's going to do all right. I think it's going to, uh, the, the big question is going to be, can he take, can he make the transition from there in, into the majors and do it in best of five where he's going to have to work harder? Yeah. And I'm, I'm coming into this, giving him the benefit of the doubt based on yeah. how he looked when we last saw him and, and even injured in Australia, he played pretty well uh, making the semifinal there and actually yeah. playing a great first set against Djokovic in that, in that semifinal. Yeah, absolutely. That was astounding. Save seven match points against tennis Sandgren in that five setter. And yes, and scared, scared Novak in the semis. And you're right. And that's with clear physical impairment. So 
Yeah, I think he's fortunate, and he it's it's not luck, but he's fortunate that he has a game that is that aggressive. That it it, it it's nothing like a Nadal or a Djokovic or any of the other top players, and and he he has that ability to really win quick, uh, physically undemanding points, and I do think that's going to help. And but uh, I, I whether or not how far it carries him, I mean, if you goes out and wins the first tournament, I tip my hat to him. I would say if he can get through two or three matches, that's that's great for him and try to build on that. And then the big question is going to be, Gil, what does he look like by Wimbledon? Mm-hmm. How much play has he gotten in? Has he been, How many tournaments has he been able to play? Has he, has he skipped Roland Garros this time or not? And then does he give himself that one last chance? Because as we know, the last time he played there in 2019, two match points in the final against Djokovic. So a lot has happened since, but if there's going to be an opportunity for Federer to win uh, one more major and get to 21, it, that's, it's going to be Wimbledon this year. I think it's Wimbledon this year, and probably that's the most likely the last, the last hurrah, the last big chance. Yeah, uh, unless it's too close to the injury, then maybe you look to Wimbledon next year. I'm not sure. But that would be asking a lot, don't you think that I'm saying you go one more year and he's then he's 40 and, you know, approaching 41. It's just asking a, a lot of him, not impossible, but obviously the, with the passage of time, it's going to get tougher each year. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very it's very difficult to say. I also think he'll probably want to keep playing until there are fans back in the in the stands. I mean, hopefully. I Hopefully he gets that, you know, as, as a send off whenever he says he's done, whether that's early on or whether that's afterwards, like, like Sampras, uh, I would say, you know, he, he does deserve to, to go out with the crowd. So I'm, I'm hoping that he gets that. No, it's a good point because I don't think there's anybody more accustomed to the exhilaration of the big crowd, the, 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 incredible support that he and, and there's never been any i've never seen anything quite like it really from the time that he say won his first wimbledon in 03 i've never seen a, a player of his stature who gets the the universal support he's received and he maybe he's a little spoiled by it it's not his fault he's conducted himself impeccably out there in the public arena but the bottom line is he's he's accustomed to crowds sort of pulling him through matches and lifting his spirits and inspiring him as he inspires them so it would be a little bit weird for roger to be playing any of these matches in front of no crowds and and trying to adjust to that he's a pro he 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 would adjust but nobody has fed off the crowds better than Federer. yeah speaking of which uh when's the last time you were at a tennis tournament wow you know, it, the last time I—it's funny—I I had to—I had to think about it for a moment as you're asking the question. Was the 2019 U.S. Open the the Dal Med, Medvedev final? Uh, that was it. You know, I, I didn't get to the Australian last year. wasn't able to make it over there in person. So obviously, I followed it, and then obviously the pandemic hit. So I have not been on site anywhere since. It's hard hard to believe. Yeah. Do you think when when do you think is the last time that you've gone this long? Oh, never, never, never. I mean, it, yeah. it, it's been a continuous, we've just never experienced anything like this. I've always been at, I've always been every year at the French Wimbledon US for, for sure. And a couple of times in Australia and then selected other places. So yeah, it's an unusually long stretch for me. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that, that you know, I, I haven't, I'm not certain yet about my plans for the French and Wimbledon. There's probably going to be very limited press in Roland Garrison. They're not sure about Wimbledon. My hope is that I'll be able to get back 
to Wimbledon on site. Yeah, and and I I hope that things once they come back to the states for the summer, um, I you know I I hope that everything is uh, approaching normalcy there, and definitely, um, hopefully, I see you at the U.S. Open. I think we both uh, <laughs> hope that. But um, this has been great, and uh, we'll definitely talk again uh, very soon. I mean, again, this is there's not nothing beats this, Steve, after after a major. Well, Gil, I, I enjoyed it as much as you did and, and take care of yourself and we'll catch up soon. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you mean cellar. the mini fridge. Yeah, it's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New New episodes of Fly on the Wall and drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wall wherever you get your podcasts.